0: That was good singing, and uh, it's an appropriate lead-in to a gospel. After singing about the cross, let's go to the book of Luke. This morning, we're going to begin a journey with Jesus through the next few weeks and preaching times. Um, Luke chapter 19 is our place this morning. We're looking at the triumphal entry of Christ Um, as we will journey through Jesus, through his entry, his approach, his entry into Jerusalem, the Passion Week, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ over the next few weeks. And I have to say, just as I'm standing here speaking to you, I do feel a little bit lippy this morning, and I have an explanation for that. I've got a fat lip, which you probably can't see from where you're seated, but um, I can feel it. It feels a little bit post-dentist-like this morning, and that came from um, a little bit of activity I had with my twins. Um, my twin boys, uh, you know, we're active bunch, and uh, Carson was taking me on with a, um, you know, a cardboard sword, in essence, and he was, you know, doing all of his sword play with me. So I took him on, and a uh, five-year-old boy. But something about twin brothers, one's going to stick up for the other. Um, apparently, Brady uh, tried out his pitching arm with a uh, what's called a magic eight ball. There's plastic balls that are hard plastic, and suddenly I felt some searing pain on my lip, and I guess he threw a strike. Anyway, um, no busted teeth, no, no lip uh, gushing, but I do um, feel the effects, so, you know my pain. Anyway, no, we're good. Um, We're looking this morning at uh, Luke chapter 19, and we're going to look at the triumphal entry of Christ. Some of you might immediately think, well, it's not Palm Sunday. Next week is Palm Sunday. Why go to the triumphal entry this morning? And one of the reasons, practically speaking, is that we're going to have 12 or 13 baptisms and testimonies. And so my sermon next week will be a part two. To where we begin in terms of the details of what is going on in the triumphal entry of Christ. Also, I have to point out to you that this is the triumphal approach of Christ. As he's taking two miles as a journey leading into Jerusalem. So, he's actually entering in later on after he approaches. And so, we're going to look at the approach. We're going to look at the details. And look at the significance of what is going on. This Vision of Christ this part of the narrative is found in all four Gospels So it is deeply significant and very important and it sets the stage for Christ's final passion week Everything he says everything he's teaching and the point that he's making Once Christ enters into the city if you know the narrative from reading the synoptics Jesus immediately goes to the temple and finds that there is corruption going on there, and he cleanses it, or he confronts it. He turns tables over. And after that scene in Matthew 21, he begins to open his heart to the lame and to the blind and those who need healing, and he has a healing ministry during that time in the temple. The priests and the scribes and the Pharisees look down on Jesus and actually indict him, And condemn him for what he's doing. And by contrast you have some children. Very similar to what we'll see next week in the waters of baptism. Who gather around Christ. This is Matthew 21 verse 16. And they say Hosanna son of David. They get it. They know who Christ is. And Jesus looks at the priests and the scribes who are indicting him. And says, out of the mouths of babes and nursing infants, you have perfected praise. As we lead into this. Event in this Passion Week, it's important for you to understand that Jesus is moving from an obscure village ministry to a very public ministry. And as Jesus becomes more public, as more of the light of Jesus is put on open display, as children and multitudes are gathering around Jesus to Finally, be exposed in full brilliance of the light of Jesus Christ. Some lines are being drawn where you have people who are genuinely believing in Christ, and you have people who are darkened in their hearts and running from Christ and condemning Christ. That's what's going on here. There's a dividing line where Christ is fully on display in public ministry, in public exposure and people are choosing one way or the other. And what you want to have is you want to have a heart that has like this children, this group of children that is perfected praise versus the superficial praise that's given by the vast majority of the people exposed to Jesus. Here's the principle. The principle of this passage and this passion week is simply this. The more that Jesus reveals himself to people, the more accountable they are to follow him. And the more that Jesus reveals himself in all of his light, in all of his glory, in all of his teaching to people, when people reject Jesus in that light, the more condemned and hardened their hearts will be. And so people are falling out on one side or the other as they encounter the living Christ in public display. And they're either hardening to Christ or they are falling helplessly before him, worshiping him with this childlike faith of perfected praise. That's my heart for you as a church, that you would worship Jesus. This Lord that we will see in the text in full detail. In his glory, that you would be true worshipers of him. This is dangerous business as you are exposed to this kind of light. Even these children, as they expose their hearts to us next week in the waters of baptism, it's dangerous business as they proclaim Christ, as they are embracing Christ, that they not only embrace Christ in that moment, but that they follow him all the days of their lives. What we have here is two kinds of worshipers that we're going to see in this text that were present at Jesus' triumphal entry, or his triumphal approach. First, we're going to look at the true worshipers that claimed Jesus as their Messiah. We begin in verses 28 through 31 with two disciples who are willing to serve the Lord. Look at verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead. Going up to Jerusalem, when he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples. Stop there. Jesus had been involved in a teaching ministry for the last three years. And it was a journey ministry where he was moving from Jericho to Jerusalem. And now we find Jesus two miles outside of Jerusalem near the Mount of Olives in the town of Bethany, right next to Bethpage. And this is kind of a hamlet town, a village town, on the outskirts, in the suburbs, outside of the main city. Jesus is in relative obscurity at this point, though his fame is following him in his ministry. People have heard about him healing the sick and raising the dead, even raising Lazarus, so people know about Jesus. But as you know, throughout his ministry, when he would heal people, he would say, look, don't tell people who I am. Don't spread my healing ministry around wildly to get a crowd after me. That's not what I'm all about. Jesus' ministry, as you know, was to follow the Lord's will and to exercise his ministry in perfect timing. And so Jesus is very deliberately, methodically moving towards Jerusalem in his perfect timing according to God's sovereign. Will He wants the timing of his entry to happen exactly at the time of the Passover, where the Passover lambs are being slain in the homes and then being slain ceremonially by the priest so that Jesus Christ, with no mistake, can be understood as the ultimate fulfillment Passover lamb to save sinners from their sins. And so Jesus is timing and deliberately coordinating coordinating everything that's going on down to these two very um, willing, servant-hearted disciples that he taps on the shoulder and says, will you go by two into this city, which I take as Bethpage, this place that we don't really know exactly where it is now, but probably two miles outside of Jerusalem. Will you go there and find this selected animal for me to ride into Jerusalem on? That's what's going on. Believers here. We're going to begin with believers in this story. People who are true worshipers of Christ. And you have two disciples who say, hey, I will be used of you to do something that is kind of odd or strange, perhaps. I will go fetch a donkey for you to ride into town on. Now, what we see here in the text is Jesus has complete awareness of what is going on and what is going to happen. It's verse 29, at the mount that is called Olivet, a 2,000-plus-foot-high mountain that's two miles outside of Jerusalem. So you would have mount, the Mount of Olives, and then it goes down two miles and then up to the city of Jerusalem. And he sent two disciples, verse 30, saying, Go into the village in front of you. Has need of it. Now, this is what I would call a very subtle miracle. It's kind of like a water to wine type moment. And subtle miracles expose the sensitivities of genuine disciples. Radical miracles draw in all kinds of people, people that experience the splash effect of gospel light. Of profound miracles that are just eye-popping, that are inexplicably God, are drawn to Jesus, but they're not necessarily true disciples. But these moments that are very subtle and very coordinated in fine detail by the Lord show genuine disciples. First of all, you have two disciples who are willing to go to Bethpage and do this very odd thing, start to untie a colt, which is really a donkey, and, and then deal with two owners with kind of without asking two owners and I take the two owners as Mrs. and Mrs. owner of the donkey and say uh, the Lord has need of your animal and so within that moment Jesus knowing the very disposition the very hearts of these two owners unlocks their hearts where they're saying okay yeah take the donkey Now, what's going on here? Well, a couple things. First of all, Jesus is fulfilling prophecy. If you turn in your Bibles back to Zechariah chapter 9, Zechariah chapter 9 is where this is prophesied of in specific detail. Verse 9 the prophet says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, a reference to Israel or Jerusalem. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So Jesus is working out the details to fulfill this prophecy. He's very much sovereignly in control. Even throughout the whole Passion Week, the Christ, as he's entering into Jerusalem, humble, seated on a donkey, and where the palm branches and the hosannas will a week later turn into crucify him. Christ is unmistakably in control of all of these events. He's not haphazardly moving through the motions, wondering what's going to happen next. Jesus is sovereign over the crosswork of Christ. Jesus is going in as a humble king, a willing king, knowingly being rejected by the multitudes going to the cross. He's riding to the cross. This isn't him testing the waters, wondering if they're going to bow to him as king at this point. No, he knows he's been rejected and he's going willingly as the substitutionary sacrifice for sins and sinners. Jesus Christ has prompted his disciples to go into Bethpage And to do an unlikely event and take a donkey. And really, if you look at the harmonized gospels here, you have the foal of a donkey, and so you have a mother donkey, (laughs) and you have the donkey. And, And the mother is also taken in this event to lead the little cult along because this little cult had never been ridden before. And that's an important detail to show the holiness of God in this moment. Jesus was born of a virgin. He was born of a woman who was completely pure. Jesus, when he died on the cross, was laid in a tomb that had never been used, the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. And in the same way, Jesus Christ is seated on a donkey that had never been ridden. Very important detail. I believe, and I have to just say this, that the owners which is our next point you have two disciples who serve the lord and then in verses 32 to 35 i believe these owners are sort of drawn into the moment where they understand what's going on. I think the Holy Spirit has prompted their hearts to say, yes, um, I've heard the sort of password language. The Lord has need of the animal, so yes, take the animal. I believe Jesus knew that these two owners were his disciples. He knows who are his, and Jesus didn't sort of go ahead of time and set this scene in place. I mean, they hadn't been to Bethpage yet, so he didn't set this up in a natural way. No, this was a supernatural knowledge that these owners were followers of his or were becoming followers in the moment, where when they heard the master, the Lord has need of it, they realized that Jesus was Lord, and they were following. They were serving. They were sacrificing to the Lord by giving their offering to him. And I just sort of uh, believe that they joined in at this point and probably went right with the animals and with these two disciples to go and see what was going on and to worship the Lord genuinely. Two owners that sacrifice to the Lord. Look again at verse 32. And so those who were sent went away and found it, just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. Now verse 35, and they brought it to Jesus. I just take the day a little bit more generically here that it could also include the owners bringing the donkey to Jesus. This donkey that had never been ridden in the book of Numbers, and 19 verse 2, sacrifices like red heifers were those that had never been yoked in manual labor before. Those were the, the pure sacrifices given to the Lord. And then in 1 Samuel 6, in like manner, two sows were the ones that were given to cart the Ark of the Covenant around. You see the spotless, pure lamb sacrifices, those are the ones that are worthy of the Lord who is holy. And this is a worthy animal for the Lord to ride upon you know a lot of people these days will worship the Lord in unholy ways Um, and a lot of times we think of unholiness more in terms of overt blasphemy where people are contra to Christ or or worshiping a different Jesus or not the Jesus of the Bible but there are more subtle forms of false worship that goes on. Um, You have many Christian rallies that take place and Christian concerts where people are drawn into the crowds and they're wanting to worship something. They're wanting to find some sort of felt need um, salve or some help in their hearts. And so they're really focused on themselves as they try to worship the Lord, but they're doing it superficially instead of out of a genuine heart attitude. And what the Lord calls for is the genuine heart of true disciples that are following him. What we have here now are some more true disciples that are found in verse 35. Several disciples that set apart the Lord. Look at this in verse 35. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. What's happening here? Actually, they are not having Jesus climb onto the animal, but they are very carefully, very methodically, very deliberately, very, uh, in a very sacred manner, lovingly placing the Lord onto the animal, where they have laid their cloaks first to create a saddle, and their cloaks also in front of each footstep of the animal as it proceeds in the two-mile journey. It's to set jesus apart as distinct as um as in the line of david the true king you know david when he came and approached the city of jerusalem and his son also as king solomon they both rode on a mule first kings 133 says that david said of solomon have solomon my own son ride on my own mule so they did this they were servants of the lord they were trusting the lord as kings who were going to picture and display this moment of jesus as the true king of kings and lord of lords the multitudes and the crowds would have wanted their king to come in on a war horse with all kinds of pomp and circumstance ultimately we're going to see as the text unfolds that the crowds were crying out to the Lord in a more superficial manner, wanting to be impressed externally, superficially, instead of wanting to see their servant king to come in on a mule. You know, these days we see in the news, on TV, we see all kinds of ceremonies and and different ways that people are elevated ceremonially and put on a pedestal, and people will even worship Those men or women who are ceremonially affirmed with all kinds of externalism, all kinds of bells and whistles, all kinds of ceremony, all kinds of sights and sounds, and people want that kind of fix in their life. They want to look at a man. They want to look at a woman and say, help me. You know, whether it's a religious leader or a political leader, this person is my savior. This person is going to give me the answer. This person is going to fix my angst in my life. And all the while, they miss the true Son of God who came humbly to help a heart issue that can only be redeemed by the Savior, the true sacrificial Lamb. You know, I was reading uh, John Calvin on this passage, and John Calvin said something that caught my attention. He, um, as a pastor said that, you know, Jesus didn't come in kingly regalia. He didn't come with external pomp and circumstance. He came as the humble one. And he said, if he didn't come as the beggar, if he didn't come as the servant, if he didn't come on the mule, then we would have no taste for this story. It it would be like food with no sauce on it. It would be tasteless. The idea of Jesus coming in this humble way where we see him through the eyes of faith for who he really is, that gives taste to this meal. It lays the sauce on it and makes it appetizing for us because our hearts have to reach out and extend in worship to the Lord, seeing through what was really going on. I don't know if you're like me, but when people superficially gather um, to worship the Lord in a superficial way, it becomes pretty superficial and tasteless to me. Inauthentic Christianity is, is just kind of a big turnoff. And so what we need to strive for is to find a true vision of the true Christ as he is displayed in Scripture, the humble king. Well, these disciples did see that humble king. They were participating in worship, but They were part of the narrow road, and now we're going to look more at the wide road of people who were worshiping the Lord superficially with their lips while their hearts were far from him. People who were saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, who six days later would say, with the crowds, prompted by Caesar, prompted by Rome, by peer pressure to say, crucify him. He was drawing near, look at verse 37. says as he was drawing near to the city already on the way down the Mount of Olives the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen stop there well what's happening is there's chatter that's going on remember you're starting with two disciples and then probably the 12 apostles and then you have a small crowd of, of people coming out of Hamlet villages. And, and you have this sort of tight group that's genuinely worshiping the Lord, laying their cloaks down, honoring him as he's going in to Jerusalem, rolling out the triumphal carpet as he's approaching the city. But then the buzz starts to happen all around, where the different hamlet villages are being awakened, and people, the poor beggars, are running out and saying, This is it, this is our moment. The Roman Empire is going to be overthrown. Why? Because this is the miracle worker. I know that Jesus. He raised Lazarus from the dead. I mean, we hear a lot about, you know, multiple miracles that are happening overseas or in third world countries and things. So we sometimes don't think of the significance of someone actually being raised from the dead. Very significant. Very unique. Very powerful. Very much putting Jesus on the map. Making him famous. I mean, Jesus, had he come during the 21st century, he would not have put himself on YouTube or cable TV to get the word out about himself um, so quickly. No, he was very contra to this kind of hype effect. In ministry, He was not an attractional minister. He was not trying to draw the crowd superficially. He was not trying to give people as much exposure as possible. Contrary to that, he was trying to sow the seeds of the gospel to produce genuine saving faith. People who are just impressed with Jesus or exposed to Jesus or who proclaim Jesus, they're not automatically saved. It's people who are genuinely converted from the inside out who see the true servant king who rides in on a donkey. Those are the ones who see the Savior for who he really is as God the Savior and King of Kings. And so Jesus is very careful to work in obscurity. But now he's coming out of obscurity and he's laying it all on the line and going into public exposure where things like this happen where people begin to buzz around and people begin to come around and clamor to see Jesus and to promote Jesus as their king, the one who will overthrow the Roman Empire. That's what they want. That's what they're striving for. And so they join in. They see what the disciples are doing. And they, as a greater crowd of disciples, probably thousands of people, are joining in to this situation because they want the tyranny of Rome to be overthrown. They want this to happen. They want, really, listen. They want the second coming to happen before his first coming mission was accomplished. They want the return of Christ that we look for, where Jesus wipes out all his enemies. They want that first without a Savior who has to die for their sins. They're not thinking about heart reconciliation. They're not thinking about their sins. They're thinking about their felt needs here on earth now. They want a fix now. They want a government to be overthrown so they can just have it all set in place for them now. It's kind of an entitlement mindset. As Jews, they think, well, we're entitled to this. This is what we deserve. And so what are they drawn by? They're drawn by, verse 37, all the mighty works that they had seen. They had seen Jesus do things. They had seen him feed the 5,000. They They've heard of these miracles, people being raised from the dead. Jesus raising a little girl from death. And where Jesus says, look, she was just sleeping and I raised her up. Again, Jesus trying to keep things obscure. Keep things um, where people won't just be impressed as if it's a magic show and, and it draws a bunch of people. That's not what Jesus is about. He wants people to see him for who he really is. And who he really was. Well, what is Jesus doing here? He's doing a couple things. Number one, he's fulfilling prophecy, as we said, um, Zechariah chapter 9. But he's also inciting the crowd to this kind of frenzy. Because, again, I have to reflect upon the fact that Jesus was sovereignly in control of all of these events. He knew the crowds were going to hype up at this time, and he knew that the crowds were going to superficially affirm him and then turn on him. And he knew he was supposed to die as a sacrificial lamb. And so that's what he's drawing into place. And so as the people begin to frenzy up in hype, they begin to, and it doesn't say this here in this um, account of the gospel but in matthew it talks about how the people begin to cut off palm branches and i know that as we've been trained in sunday school and and have heard this taught that people affirm that act but actually as they were cutting off palm branches and waving them and laying them before jesus as he moved along they were wanting to usher in his second coming instead of his first coming the waving of the palm branch was a sign for them thinking back to the Feast of Tabernacles. And the Feast of Tabernacles was where they would, as a city, tabernacle or tent camp all around Jerusalem and worship the Lord because of his former deliverance. And when they would wave palm branches, they would think about those tents made of palm branches and look for the Lord's return in the future to come back as the warrior king. What they were doing is they were celebrating the wrong ceremony. They should have been thinking about Passover. And they were thinking about the Feast of Tabernacles. We do look for the Lord's return. We do want him to come back as a warrior king. But he first had to come and die and suffer as a lamb for our sins. So important not to forget about the gospel in terms of our sins needing to be forgiven. A lot of times when you talk to people about Jesus, they say, oh, I like Jesus. I I think he's a good man, a good moral teacher. But you need to want and know about Jesus in terms of your sin and your need for him to wash your sins away. That's the Jesus who is the redeemer, the one who has taken our sin away, who has granted us pardon and forgiveness. That's the Jesus of this vision, of this story. So the multitudes are singing to the Lord, again, with loud voices for all the mighty works that they had seen. And they're quoting Psalm 118, which again is a Hallel Psalm. We, we read it at the top of the hour. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They're singing and saying scripture, but they're doing it even superficially. And ironically, they're talking about peace in heaven. Do you see that in verse 38? Peace in heaven. What is that talking about? You know what that's talking about? It's talking about being reconciled with holy God. It's not talking about being in a situation where the government is overthrown on earth. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about being reconciled in heaven with God. And so ironically, they're quoting the scripture and misapplying it in terms of their own situation. The angels, when they gave a magnificent display of heavenly host worshiping the Lord in Luke chapter 2, when Jesus was born, they said, blessed be God peace on earth and goodwill towards men but remember the peace on earth wasn't happening because the jews rejected jesus and so now this is what is being proclaimed that the peace is in heaven and our peace with god is reconciled in heaven even ephesians chapter one speaks of how as believers we are seated now at the right hand of the throne of god in heaven as if we're already there we're reconciled in glory or sin is not held against us. That's what they were saying, but they weren't truly grasping what was going on. Well, the unbelief gets more acute in verse 39. In verse 39, you have the Pharisees who censor the Lord. They censure the Lord. Verse 39, look at this. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples what are the Pharisees doing at this point again they're religious leaders they're kind of blending in with the crowd Um, they're they're kind of probably participating a little bit but then they're seeing the hype that's going on and they're being jealous in terms of how they feel about things. I mean, they as religious leaders have hearts far from God, and even though they're religious leaders in the name of God, they're completely missing the point that God had sent his son. And so they don't get who Jesus is. They think he's a teacher. They think he's done some things in the name of God, but they're also ashamed of what the people are saying. They're offended by what the people are singing, and they want it to stop. These Pharisees have hearts that are hardened towards Jesus, and so their only recourse in this situation is to ask Jesus to shut it down. Jesus, will you please pull the plug on this event? Because They are believing that even Jesus would think this is blasphemy. Hey, Jesus, they're calling you God. They're calling you the Messiah. They're saying that you're the Savior, and we know you're not, so can you please shut this blasphemy down? This is inappropriate. This is something that needs to stop. You're not the Savior. You're not the Son of God. Shut this down. You get it, don't you? Well, the Pharisees were cynical. They were trying to censor Jesus. They were trying to shut it down. And they were also doing something else here. They were concerned because the crowds were hyping up that the Roman Empire and the Roman government would rain terror and fire down on them. They were concerned that the Roman Empire would think this is a you know, a coup takeover, and they were concerned that their Pharisee position would be dethroned, that they would, they would be shut down themselves. And so they're going, Jesus, stop this thing. Cut it out. Ironically, what happens is, is because Jerusalem ultimately turns on Christ and their Hosanna praises, where they're crying out to the Lord, saying, Lord, save us, because they genuinely don't give their hearts over to Jesus, what is God going to do 70 years later? Seventy years later, in AD 70, we're going to learn about this next week, the Roman Empire actually comes in as a judgment hand of God and crushes and raises the city of Jerusalem and destroys it. Men, women, and children destroyed. Why? Because they didn't genuinely praise the Lord. They didn't genuinely love and accept and receive Jesus. And so there's a judgment that comes to them because they ultimately will stop praising the Lord. And that's exactly what the Pharisees wanted to happen without having the Roman Empire destroy them. And in essence, their hard-heartedness is what brings judgment. So it's kind of a strange irony with what they're doing. They're rebuking the teacher. They're rebuking Jesus. And what does Jesus say in response? He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. What is Jesus saying here? Again, the crowds were saying Hosanna, and we don't have that explicitly in this text, but in the Gospels, the word Hosanna is used, and that is an Old Testament reference um, from Psalm 118, verse 26, which means, God save us, Lord save us. And it could also mean, spun a different way, God save this king. God save this Messiah. In other words, preserve this Messiah who's going to deliver us. God save us. And Jesus wants that to be spoken. Interestingly, Jesus, even though he's reading the hearts of the crowd... He wants the truth of this prophecy to be fulfilled and he wants the crowds to praise him. You know, when, even when people's hearts are wrong, when they get the gospel right, do you know God is still glorified? That's what Paul said, even in pretense, when preachers preach and I'm in prison and they're trying to do me harm, even though they do it out of an ill motive, if they get the gospel right, praise the Lord that the gospel's going out. And so Jesus isn't going to shut this down. He also knows this is part of the Lord's plan. This is his approach. This is the public moment of Jesus Christ being on full display. In other words, when the king comes and the light of the glory of Christ is on display in this approach... There's going to be acknowledgement of that. There must be acknowledgement of that. Nothing can stop the movement of Jesus Christ. Nothing can stop the power of Jesus Christ. Christ will build his church, and the gates of hell cannot prevail over this movement. And so, he's saying, metaphorically, I believe, look, if you shut them down, the rocks are going to cry out. Now, could rocks cry out supernaturally? I guess so. I mean, you know, water came from a rock when Moses struck it, right? I mean, God can do supernatural things, but he's reflecting upon a judgment phrase from Habakkuk where the, the... Minor prophets said the exact same thing, that you can't shut down the glory of God. And if you try to shut it down, even the rocks are going to cry out. Now we know that Psalm 19 says the heavens declare the glory of God. And so the creation bespeaks the glory of God. But I think what Jesus is saying here is even some sarcasm towards the Pharisees. If you shut these people down, if, if their hearts ultimately harden in this moment, And they become, as Jonathan Edwards puts it, stupid as stones. If they do that, then even the stones are going to cry out. You can't shut down the chorus of praise that is worthy and due the name of Jesus Christ. You can't. Nothing can stop the work of Christ. Nothing can stop the momentum that Jesus is finding himself in as he moves towards Golgotha. He must go there. And even though they were 95% in their hearts towards Jesus, and it was superficial, it was still appropriate because what they were saying was in line with the truth. But I have to say, it is a sobering thing to think that most in the crowd were not genuine believers I mean, let that sink in. I mean, I believe that there were believers in the crowd. I mean, we've listed some believers that were in the crowd, and I believe people can be one to Christ in that experience, or people were genuinely praising the Lord, but the vast majority of the crowds, as we'll see as the text unfolds, are not genuine believers. This leads us to our last point. Je- Jerusalem scorns the Lord. This is verses 41 and 42. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. Stop there. Jesus is coming down from the Mount of Olives, a 2,000-foot descent, two miles towards Jerusalem. And as he begins to see the city on a hill, he sees Jerusalem in two ways. First of all, he sees it for as it is, the vision of a beautiful city that is the city of God. Then he sees it with a different prophetic vision because Jesus is omniscient. He sees all. He knows all. He sees a city that's going to be laid waste by the Roman Empire. Seventy years later, it is going to be raised. Or A.D. 70, not 70 years later. A.D. 70, it's going to be raised a few years later. It's the judgment of God through a pagan people on God's people who rejected him. Against God's own people, God brings judgment. Through a pagan empire. And that utterly causes Jesus to weep. Now Jesus is said to have wept one other time in the gospels. He cries out over Jerusalem. And, and, and cries out that his, his bowels and his, his stomach is turning and churning over Jerusalem. But in John 11 that's where it says Jesus explicitly wept over the death of Lazarus. Well, here is the one other time in Scripture where Jesus is seen weeping. And I don't want you to picture Jesus' tears as something that are, that's just kind of a, kind of a veiled whimpering or, or crying in his heart. This is Jesus sobbing. Now, Jesus is always in control as the Lord of the universe. But in his humanity, it is that uncontrollable sobbing and weeping and wailing over the city. That's the picture. Sobbing and sobbing and sobbing because Jesus, fully human, loves people who are going to die. And Jesus sees the implications of their rejection against him, superficial worship, superficial praise, and it breaks his heart and he weeps and he wails for them, wanting people to know him, wanting people to have their eternity set wanting to people to be reconciled to God, weeping for the lost. This is a person who in perfection weeps and wails for the lost, who has a heart to see people reconciled to God. And when he sees people utterly, hard-heartedly rejecting Christ, he breaks down in tears. That's the compassion of the Lord. The Lord is not callous to these people. He loves these people. Even his disciples, they wouldn't fully understand why Jesus went to the cross until he was resurrected. But they believed. They wanted Jesus. They were following him. And it came to clarity to a few. But the masses, in great majority, failed to see who Jesus really is. They're under a stupor, as the book of Romans puts it. The Jews, and Christ weeps openly with sobbing. He sees the beautiful city and then he sees the death therein. Why? Because the people's worship was a charade. A charade. It was a sham. We're going to see this as the text unfolds it next week. You know, as we unfold the text next week about this judgment that is on Jerusalem, I want you to remember where we began. You have Pharisees and priests who are the ultimate in terms of religious hypocritical hard-heartedness, and they are pictured and portrayed in the temple next against, up against, or next to children, saying, Hosanna, son of David. And Jesus looks at those children and says to the Pharisees, listen, you don't understand who I am, but these babies do. These nursing infants, these little children, they get it, and their praise is perfected praise. Is your praise perfected praise? The praise that comes from a transformed heart where you're not trying to save yourself, but you realize that you need a Savior and that as a believer, you have a Savior who has saved you. That's what ushers in perfected praise where we worship this king who comes in on a donkey. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the warning of this passage. It is very sobering to think about the comparison and contrast between true believers and those who are superficially or even pragmatically crying out to a king. Lord, we know that you are king, and Lord, we don't want to be part of the wide road that leads to destruction. We want to be those who are on the narrow road, following you as Lord we love you, God, and I pray that if anyone here has not yet followed you as Lord and Savior, that they would have a true vision of who you are as a suffering servant who came, was buried, and rose again on the third day to cover all of our sins, the one who is to be followed as Lord. We love you, God, and we thank you for our church, and we thank you that you are the head of our church, and we follow you as the servant king. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.